Let's, uh, let's get into God's Word together. Um, when, I, when I first started, actually, in that same church that I just told you about as a, as a young youth pastor on a very meager salary, um, there, there was a particular man in the church who was very well off, and one of those guys who kind of liked to let everyone know that he had money. He liked to flaunt it a little bit. And uh, he had just gotten back from an extended cruise that took him literally around the world. And uh, he caught my eye the first Sunday back in the, you know, across the foyer of the church. And, and he called me over in this kind of, you know, that hushed voice that's kind of pretending to be discreet while still attracting extra attention because it's pretending to be discreet. Uh, and he put his arm around me. And uh, he told me that he appreciated me in the way that kind of implied that others didn't. Uh, and, and he pulled this black velvet bag out of his chest pocket, and out of that bag slid this watch. And he gave it to me, uh, and then he just kind of walked away. And uh, for those of you who can't see, this is a gold watch, and it has an unbroken ring of diamonds on the face of it, so you wonder why you haven't seen me wear it before. Uh, it doesn't make it out of the house much. Um, on the top, it has this coveted little five-tiered crown, and it says Rolex underneath. Uh, a quick Google search will show you this watch uh, is worth somewhere in the range of fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. Just gonna put this down. <laughs> but another quick Google search uh, will tell you um, that it's not. It's not genuine. It's not authentic. The diamonds aren't real. The gold isn't real. Um, it's fake. Um, and, and so it's actually worth very little. I have no idea what he paid for it. <laughs> but it's certainly not worth the 20 grand that I momentarily hoped it was worth. Authenticity matters. Authenticity is significant. And uh, and, and something that is authentic, that is what it truly presents itself to be, can be worth incredible value. But if it's not authentic, uh, that value can all of a sudden go to nil. And just like it matters with a watch, with a piece of art, um, with a $20 bill, uh, it also matters with our faith. Authenticity matters. And, and there is such a thing as a counterfeit faith as an inauthentic faith. A thing that, that pre presents itself as legitimate, it looks like the real deal, the owner of it may truly, sincerely believe it to be real, but it's counterfeit. And though a fake watch or a piece of art might have significant loss of value if it's found to be inauthentic, it's nothing compared to the eternal consequences of faith. A counterfeit faith, a faith that's not genuine, that's not a true faith, uh, is not only of no value, but it will cost you an eternal cost. That's significant. Whereas an authentic faith, a true, genuine faith, is of infinite value, eternal value. And, and so the ever-important question hangs in front of us, how can you tell? How do you know, realizing that those who own that faith that is inauthentic don't realize it? We ought to have a moment of fear there that ought to ask, push us to ask this question, how can I tell? And, and much like my watch or a piece of art or a $20 bill, there are certain tests that we can put to our faith 
There are distinguishing marks to be looked for uh, to answer that question of authenticity. And, and that's what we're going to be doing over the next five months or so as we work our way verse by verse through the book of James. James includes a series of tests. He lays out for us from kind of a number of different angles um, the marks of an authentic faith. Now, you can imagine, as I first sat down beside my computer with my watch and began to Google search, I was a little defensive. I didn't want to know, right? It's painful to find out that something you thought may be of great value is actually of no value, and, and in much the same way with our faith, we're going to ask some uncomfortable questions, some painful questions, and, and you're going to be really tempted to get defensive and say, not me, I don't want to ask that question, but look, the stakes are just too high. This is not something that you want to just kind of go off on the assumption and hope everything turns out all right. It's too great a risk, and the wonderful truth on the other side of that, is that though an authentic faith is of infinite value, it's also free for the taking. And actually, it's this process of examination, of asking those hard questions that the Lord often uses to produce that authentic faith. And, and so we need to walk through this. We need to ask these hard questions. We need to engage this text as we go, and, and painful, as uncomfortable as it may be, um, we have everything to gain and, and nothing to lose. So we invite you to, to engage, um, to join us, to, to open your heart and be willing to, to look at this scripture for what it is uh, over these next five months as we work through the book of James and ask, what does it mean to have a faith that is authentic? Um, and uh, as we move into this journey together, would you join me in prayer? Father, help us. God, you know our hearts better than we do. And Lord, we know the deceitfulness of our own hearts. We know our ability um, to pull the wool over our own eyes, to believe what is not true, to be deceived. So God, would you open our eyes? Lord, would you give us soft hearts this morning uh, as we turn to your word and in the months ahead? God, would you be at work? And Lord, I pray that as we uh, open ourselves up and look at this scripture clearly, look into your perfect law and its mirror, Lord, that we would be convicted, that we would be transformed and changed. God, that there would be some here, even this morning, who have come in with a faith that is superficial, a faith that is not genuine, that they would have their eyes opened and come to truly trust in Christ. God, that you would be about this good work in the months ahead, that you would be strengthening us as a church, that you would grow us in steadfastness, Lord, that we would be formed into the image of Christ together, that we might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Lord, do your good work um, as you promised, that your word would not return void, but it would accomplish what it sets out to do. Send your spirit now and, and, and work in us, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. Uh, James is near the end of your New Testament, um, so 
get through all the books of Paul and then Hebrews, and then you'll find James. If you get into 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st John, 2nd John, you've gone too far, back up. Uh, it's, it's right in there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, there's one at the end of your pew. We want you to have God's word open in front of you. Um, I have nothing of value to say. Uh, I have no great wisdom to impart to you. This is all I have, is God's word. And so I want you to be able to look down and see it for yourself. And we come together under God's word um, to learn and to grow together. And that's my goal, is to say nothing other than what God has already said. Um, so let's look together uh, at James chapter 1. Uh, we have a huge job in front of us today. Um, Corey, very graciously... Um, kept his sermon at like a half an hour. I think it was 34 minutes. Um, I'm going to use some of his banked time. Sorry. <laughs> um, we got work to do. Uh, I'm going to try and move this as quick as we can, but there's a lot to cover. So um, we're going to look at not only at verses two to four, um, but also uh, verse one gives us some basic information about what this book is about, who wrote it, who it's to, uh, what's going on. So we need to, we need to tackle that first. Uh, so James chapter one, verse one says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. For most of Paul's letters, which is the most of the, the New Testament, we know from, from Acts and from the conglomeration of these letters kind of what he was doing and, and who he was and who he was writing to and what the issues were that he was addressing. Um, for the book of James, this is it. This is really all we know about who it was written by and, and who it's written to. Um, but there's actually a lot that we can get from looking carefully at this one verse. Um, for instance, um, we can see that, that it's significant that he just calls himself James. That's it. The fact that he introduces himself simply as James and expects people to know who he is um, means that he must have been a James who was well enough known that he could do that. Um, kind of like the guy that calls you and says, hey, it's me. That narrows it down. There's only a few people who I would expect to be calling me right now um, who I would know. And, and so uh, there's only two guys uh, in the New Testament that, that, that fit that bill of a James who's well enough known to introduce himself that way and expect to be known. Um, the first is James, the son of Zebedee. Um, he was one of Jesus' closest disciples, right? It's always Peter, James, and John who were off with, with Jesus. They were his close inner circle. Um, but Acts 12 tells us that that James was actually martyred. He was killed by Herod Agrippa uh, in the year 44. And, and so that's uh, a little too early for this book to have been written. It doesn't seem likely that it would be that James. The other James uh, that everyone knew was the James who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And the really cool thing about that James, get this, it was Jesus' younger brother. Like, crazy. He grew up with Jesus. I mean, I, I know you think your older brother was perfect and you lived in his shadow and it was always hard to please your parents after your older brother. Can you imagine? Oh, how come you love Jesus? How come Jesus never gets grounded? Oh, brutal. Brutal. He grew up with Jesus as his older brother. So he's, he'd technically be Jesus' half-brother. Um, they share Mary as a mother, but the whole virgin birth thing, right? Um, they have different fathers. Um, and here's James's testimony in, in just a snapshot. Um, we know as the son of Mary and Joseph, he grew up in a faithful Jewish home. 
Uh, he would have been taught the Old Testament. He would have grown up going to uh, Jerusalem regularly, participating in the festivals. Um, but from John 7, we know that, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him while he was preaching and teaching and walking the earth. They were not early disciples, which kind of makes sense. It's kind of hard to say that your brother is Lord. Um, I can see that being a bit of a stumbling block. Um, but then 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us that after Jesus had died and rose again, he appeared to 500 people around Jerusalem, and, and James is specifically mentioned by name as one of them. So Jesus appeared, hey, little brother, um, guess what? I was telling the truth. It's real. And, and, uh, and so then by Acts chapter 1, um, this would be 50 days after uh, the death of Jesus, um, we see Jesus' brothers again no doubt including James, gathered with the disciples in the upper room and they're praying and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit that Jesus would say, said would come. And, and so these, they, they join the disciples, they're followers of Jesus. And, and then by Acts 12, uh, we see James as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, which is a hugely significant church. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit, uh, but that's a big deal. Um, by the time Galatians 1.19 is written, Paul actually refers to James as one of the apostles. He has that kind of influence, that kind of significance in the early church. Um, from history, from tradition, we know that James was a godly man. Um, his nickname was James the Just or James the Righteous. He's this holy guy. And uh, it was said that his knees were like the knees of a camel from the time that he spent in prayer for the church. So that's the kind of man that we're talking about here. Um, now, one question arises often. If this is, in fact, Jesus' brother, why doesn't he say that? Why doesn't he say James, the brother of Jesus? And, and I think there's a couple good reasons for that. Um, first, I think, because they know him. He doesn't have to introduce himself. And those who have true influence um, don't have to flaunt their credentials, right? It's not like that guy who has a, a PhD in tiddlywinks physics and demands that you call him doctor every time. No, he, they know him. He has influence. He doesn't have to flaunt it. But secondly, I don't think he sees his physical relationship to Jesus as being the most significant part of his relationship to Jesus. He is not primarily the brother of Jesus He's primarily the servant of Jesus. Actually, the word there's doulos. It should be translated slave. James, the slave of God and of the Lord. That's master. That goes with the slave imagery. His master, Jesus Christ. So that's where he sees himself in this picture. He's not primarily the brother of Jesus, but the slave of Jesus, who is his Lord. Uh, and so that's who this letter is from, James, the slave of Jesus, who just happens to be the brother of Jesus and the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, who's it written to? We're told here, he addresses it to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Uh, 12 tribes, that tells us he's writing to Jews, he's writing to Israelites. Um, but it's very obvious as we read this letter, he's writing to, to Jews who come to trust in Jesus. They are, they're believing Jews, they're ethnically Jewish, but they are Christians, and in uh, not just one group, one, one church or gathering of them, he's writing to all of the Jews uh, who are in the dispersion, or the believing Jews in the dispersion. They're, they're dispersed. They're, they're the Jews that are scattered. 
and, and there's a couple of categories here. Um, first, you have um, those Israelites that were scattered hundreds of years before this by the Assyrians and the Babylonians as they kind of came in as God's judgment over Israel before they were, you know, Jews were kind of brought back by Cyrus, but many of them were left kind of scattered around the world. And, uh, but more recently, uh, through the book of Acts, if you remember, the church in Jerusalem just exploded. It was on fire. Uh, Acts 4.4 tells us there were 5,000 men, and then you have their families, so we're looking at like at least triple that. They had big families, uh, probably more than triple. Uh, and then Acts 14, after this 5,000 men, we're told then more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So this church is big. Like we're talking tens of thousands. This is a mega church in Jerusalem. Uh, and then we get to Acts 11. And verse 19 says, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. And so as persecution arose and Stephen is martyred, a lot of those new Jewish Christians said, we're getting out of here. This is a dangerous place to be. And so they scattered all over the world, proclaiming the gospel to their fellow Jews as they went. And so you have these thousands of ethnically Jewish Christians who are just spreading out over the countryside, dispersing over um, kind of the known world. Uh, and in some places, kind of a handful of Jews would leave the synagogue and join them. Other places, no doubt, whole synagogues just came to Christ and, and became uh, churches. And, and so you can imagine the sense of excitement. Like they know they're on the cutting edge of God's plan. He's doing amazing things. The church is exploding and spreading and going out. But also some fear. I mean, they're running from persecution. They're scared for their lives as they go. Um, they've left their homes, their, their families, the, the country that they knew and loved and grew up in. Um, and, and they're risking further persecution as they continue to share the gospel from, from their fellow Jews, from the government. Um, and, and so they're in, in all kinds of risk and danger. And on top of that is this sense of, uh, of, of uncertainty. They're still trying to figure out, what is this new life? What does it mean to be a Christian? They were raised as Jews under the law of Moses. What does it mean now to live as a Christian under the Messiah? And, and, and trying to figure that all out. The, the Mosaic law had now been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled. Jesus was everything that it was pointing forward to. And so what does it look like now to live under the Messiah rather than under Moses? And, and they knew what a what a Jew looked like. They knew what an authentic Jew, you could see that. There were even physical markings to determine that. But what does an authentic Christian look like? And that's not as clear. That's not as easy. And so James, their former pastor, the pastor in the church in Jerusalem, is, is writing them this letter to those that are scattered, the brothers and sisters there, to answer that question. Um, so that's who this letter is, is written to. And then finally, as far as the date, when was this written? Um, Probably the biggest tip is there was a controversy um, over a group called the Judaizers. Corey talked about them last week. Um, they were a bunch of Jews who were trying to make the Gentile Christians follow Jewish law. And there's even people doing that today, not even 
Jews themselves. It's, it's absurd. But anyway, that's what was going on. And, and a bunch of Jews are trying to force the Gentiles into their kind of Jewish paradigm, though they are also followers of Christ. And this controversy arose in Acts 15. You have James, there is the church in Jerusalem, and Peter and Paul and Barnabas all gather to settle this issue. We need to figure this out. We need to make it clear. Um, and we know that happened in the year 48 or 49. And the fact that th that that meeting is not mentioned in the book of James strongly suggests that it was written before that. So probably 46, 47 AD, about 15 years after Jesus had died. So this is fairly early. Um, that's who James is. That's who he's writing to. That's kind of what's going on, the landscape of this. Um, let's get into the letter. And, and uh, James doesn't waste any time. These, these believing Jews are harassed and fearful, scattered around by persecution. No doubt um, they would meet all kinds of trials and suffering as they go. Uh, and, uh, and, and he's so quick to point out to them that they're going to meet all these different trials and to encourage them. To point out to them that these trials, this suffering and hardship that you're about to, to face uh, is a test of your faith. It's a, it's a proving ground for the authenticity of your faith. This is it. And so the first thing he tells them is that authentic faith counts it joy. Authentic faith counts it joy. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, let's just be clear. He's not saying um, pretend that trials are fun. That, that's, not, that's just not reality. That's not what he's after here. Um, but rather what he's saying is when you meet trials of various kinds, you're to count it joy. Much like Habakkuk. We just spent the summer looking through Habakkuk. He's not denying the presence of trials and hardship and struggles and pain. He's not, he's not glossing over that at all. Um, pretending like life is just fun and easy breezy, but he's calling for a joy within the midst of that hardship, within the midst of the trial. We know life is hard, right? And Job 14.1 just puts it so succinctly, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. There it is. Life is short and hard. Thanks, Job. There's your coffee mug verse for the day. Doesn't that make you feel better? Jesus himself promised, in this life, you will have trouble. And not just suffering and pain in general as we live in this kind of broken, corrupted world from sin and death, but uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 adds to that. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. Every true believer will be persecuted. Why? Jesus says, well, they hated me. If you look like me, they're going to hate you. If the world has no problem with your Christianity, if the world doesn't hate you, you don't understand Jesus. So much about this life is about expectations, isn't it? It's really lousy when someone tells you, oh, it's the best movie ever, it's the greatest movie, you've got to go see it, and you go see it, and it's just like, eh, it'll be okay. Uh, it's all about expectations. Um, we ought to expect suffering and trouble and hardship and persecution and suffering. That's what we're in for. That's what we're here. Uh, it's inevitable in this life. Sorry if I put a downer on your morning. Uh, and, and James says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Whatever trial, every and any trial that you come up against, from, from the passing inconvenience of another interruption in your day to the diagnosis of cancer. 
from, from stubbing your toe to the loss of a child. In every trial, authentic faith counts it joy. I don't think it needs to be said, but that, that command there to count it joy kind of tips us off. This is not natural. This is not our default position. This is a deliberate and intentional act. This is the response of faith, authentic faith. Um, you will face trials. You will have hardships and struggles. You need to expect that. Be ready for it. And, and then you need to make this deliberate choice as your brain and your heart are confronted with bad news, with pain, with suffering, and you begin to spiral into anger and frustration and bitterness and despair. You need to hit pause on that and say, no, I'm going to count it joy. That's the mark of authentic faith. That's what true faith does. Um, but how, right? We have, we have to answer that question because right now I just sound like a raving lunatic. This is insane. You're delusional. You're in pain. Just count it joy. What does that mean? Um, no, this is not just a hollow Pinterest platitude. There's background to this. There's foundation for this. Habakkuk's answer would have been that that you find joy through suffering uh, as, you, as you begin rooting your joy in the Lord himself, as you pull your heart away from the broken cisterns of this world, the things that, that promise to satisfy you and never deliver, and you pull your heart out of that and place your joy, root your joy in the fountain of living water, the Lord himself. And James would not disagree with that at all. James is right on board with that. But James is a little more practical. And he's talking a little more about what does this look like day by day in the process as it happens? How do we do that? What does that look like on the ground? How does authentic faith, trusting the Lord, respond to suffering in real time? How is it that true faith counts it joy? Well, first, authentic faith counts it joy. Secondly, authentic faith continues in steadfastness. Continues in steadfastness. And that's the answer to the how question. How do we count it joy? By continuing in steadfastness. Look at uh, verse 3 there. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So the ESV opens that for you know. Um, that it's a participle there. It, it, it could be translated uh, knowing. So count it all joy knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This, this is how. How do you do it? You know something. You do it rooted in this knowledge. It's the battle between the heart and the head again. We saw this consistently through Habakkuk between what we feel and what we know. Suffering, persecution, trials, hardship, it feels awful. I feel like God has abandoned me. I feel like this is not fair. My heart tells me I should be discouraged and anger and bitter and spiteful. And we innately trust our heart, don't we? Oh man, parenting kids just brings these things out. Nothing harder than to tell a kid, I know you believe this is true, but you have to believe me instead. You feel this way and you're wrong. That's hard. But faith is about what I know. And I can count it joy knowing, in spite of what I feel, knowing that this is, this is testing my faith. That this is a moment of authentication. This is it. When that trial comes, when the darkness rolls in, now I get to see what my faith is really made of. Now I get to see if it's worth it. 
if it's true. I get to test the authenticity of what I claim to believe. Here it is. And here's the deal. The, the scientific world, um, some tests are uh, categorized as destructive tests. Remember that from high school? Um, destructive tests, like a hardness test or a bend test, right? Can, can we hit this object with X amount of force and, and will it withstand or will it break? Can we bend this to such and such a degree or with so many pounds of pressure, will it, will it flex and return or will it break? And, and, and the same is true of our faith. It's a destructive test. Will it survive or will it be destroyed? Jesus talks about authentic faith and, and counterfeit faith this way. Matthew 13, um, this is so instructive. He says, uh, Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, so he's throwing seed out, planting seed in the field. As he sowed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And Jesus goes on to explain that parable in detail, and I want to read that for us because I think it's so important for us to get this. Jesus says, when anyone hears the words of the kingdom, there's the seed going out, does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away what has been sown in their heart. This is what is sown along the path. As for this, what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word immediately, receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for the one that was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown in the good soil, this is the one who hears the word, listen, who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, one case a hundredfold and another sixty and another thirty. So the gospel goes out broadly. We, we send it out. We tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. We call them to repentance and faith. And some people don't even get it. They dismiss it out of hand. They don't hear it. They don't care. It comes in one ear. It goes out the other. But there are others who hear it. And they receive it with joy. And they spring up quickly. And there's, there's, there's passion about Jesus and excitement. And, and, and the church, I think, is so eager to say to that person, oh, you are certainly saved. And we're told, write it in your Bible. Mark it down. Today's the day. And once saved, always saved. And never doubt it again. It's done. It's finished. But the reality is, according to Jesus... Some of those who excitedly received the gospel, who, who called themselves Christians, who went to church and sang and worship and went to small group, they had no root. The gospel never actually transformed their heart. It had no depth in them. They were not born again. And so they endure for a little while. They carry on in the flesh, doing the things that, that Christians do, sometimes for years. 
But when either persecution or tribulation arose and hard time comes, or the cares of this world, the desire after sin or the desire for for comfort and riches here creeps in, what looked like faith proves to be unfruitful, proves that it was not authentic. The plant dies. And it's not that they were saved and unsaved. It shows that the gospel never had its full impact. It never took root. Much as they looked like true believers, when the bend test came, when the pressure was on, they, they proved their true nature. And what looked like faith, by all accounts, crumbled. It was easy to say, oh, I'll follow Jesus in the moment, surrounded by people saying, oh, you got to do it, you got to do it. And, and they said, yeah, I'll follow you. And then Jesus comes and says, okay, will you follow me when it's hard? Will you follow me when there's cost? Will you follow me when it's painful? And their answer went from yes, yes, yes to no, no, no. And Jesus says, that shows there never truly was a yes. It was only the last category, only the final group who received it and understood it. And they bore fruit. There are many today um, who, until that point of testing, um, will believe their faith to be genuine. But in the trial, the truth becomes evident. The counterfeit is uncovered. I told you, you wouldn't like hearing some of these things. That's painful. That's an ugly reality that we have to face. That that changes the way we we understand the, the church, maybe. And let's just be clear what this looks like. Sometimes those people just outright say, I'm done with Jesus, right? I think we've met those people. Uh, I grew up as a Christian. Um, I tried Christianity, didn't work, don't like it, not going back. Um, I did all of the Christian things and it it didn't work, so I left. Um, Sometimes, often today, um, what they'll simply do is redefine Jesus. They may continue to call themselves Christians, um, but they begin to disregard Scripture and put away the Jesus of the Bible, and they're following uh, kind of their own Jesus, a Jesus they like a little better, a Jesus who allows them to continue on in sin, a Jesus who allows them to be um, worldly. And they cease to actually submit to and follow him as Lord, regardless of what they say. And, and you cannot be a follower of Christ if you're not actually following Christ following him uh, in his word. You don't get to make up your own Jesus. And so this isn't about doubting and wrestling, right? Habakkuk doubted, wrestled, fought deeply. He questioned the Lord hard, but he wrestled in the context of faith. He held on to God as he questioned. These people are walking away. They reject Jesus in order to embrace the things of this world. They walk away from Jesus in order to pursue sin or in order to just embrace anger and bitterness against God. And so times of trial and hardship produce that opportunity, produce that result. It gives us an opportunity to put our words of faith into action, to put them to the test. And it needs to be pointed out that the North American church has spent the last, what, 150, 200 years in a time of a historically unmatched peace and comfort. Christianity has been 
default in, in large swaths, historically and geographically, um, it, it's been easier to be a Christian than not. And that's strange. And that created a church that is largely untested. Uh, people who are comfortable to come and sit in a pew and listen to a joke and a story and a poem to close, and it's, and it's cute and it's fun, and we all go our happy separate ways and, and don't give it another thought who call themselves Christians in the public square even, but it's never cost them anything. And that gives birth to the casual or the cultural Christian, those who just kind of are Christian by default. I guess I'm Christian. My mom is Christian. My dad is Christian. That makes me Christian, right? Um, that doesn't happen in North Korea, where if you're found to be a Christian, uh, you're likely to either be killed on the spot or sent to a labor camp. That doesn't happen in Afghanistan where a new Christian is more likely than not to be killed by a member of their own family. That doesn't happen in Somalia, Libya, Pakistan where thousands of Christians are being killed annually for their faith and yet the church grows and it's tested and it's pure. There are no casual Christians in North Korea. The church in many places around the world is small and brutally persecuted and abused and strong and pure and tested. And, and, and in North America, by God's grace, we've been left it at peace and, and the church has grown large, but I fear that it also has grown weak and it's gone untested. And, and it's tragic to think that there may be many people, countless people sitting in church even this morning Doubtless, even here today, with a superficial, counterfeit faith that has never been tested. It's just easy. And they have no idea. And not only have they not been tested and forced to examine their own faith, but sadly, the church and the preachers uh, have lost sight of this truth. And so even those living in open sin and rebellion against Christ are never called to account are never pushed and forced to make that decision. In fact, their sin is overlooked, sometimes even condoned by the church, and they're insulated from that trial. They're sheltered from what, by God's mercy, should have caused them to test themselves and, and to run in repentance and faith to Christ. Instead, it's quietly swept under the rug, and they carry on in their ignorance. They don't have to ask the hard questions or choose between Christ and sin because they're told they don't need to. And the church becomes a dangerous place where those who are self-deceived in their sin are actually confirmed in that. It's tragic. And they even come to the place of boldly declaring our generation's favorite and most misused verse, don't judge me. No. How can this happen? Let it not be. What a disgrace. What a tragedy. How absolutely heartbreaking that people would grow up in the church and have their sin coddled and covered until they stand before the Lord and the Lord says, oh no, you never knew me. But if you undergo trials, if your faith is truly put to the test, if you're forced to, to choose between sin and Christ, if you're forced to choose between the, the easy way and going with the, what the culture believes and what everything is pressing in that direction or choosing Christ, it's flexed and it's pressed 
beyond belief. Sometimes it's so hard, it costs you more than you ever thought it would, and your faith might creak and groan. But count it joy. Count it joy, because if your faith holds under that pressure, if you remain faithful through the trial, that testing of authentic faith, far from breaking, it actually strengthens. It actually produces steadfastness. Like metal that is heated and tempered and becomes stronger than ever. Like gold that is passed through the fire and comes out more pure on the other side. The testing of an authentic faith produces steadfast faith. A holding firm, a clinging to faith, a, a resolute refusal to be shaken from conviction. We need to remember we don't start there, right? That's not the beginning point. That's moving down the road. We begin first as untested and immature and, and in our infancy of faith. And we may start with, with doubt and uncertainty and wavering, um, but that testing of the faith over time, one test after another, little by little, produces that steadfastness in us. Like weightlifting, you actually tear the muscle fibers as you lift more than you're able to, more than your muscles can, and, and it does damage to those fibers. But then as you rest and they heal and grow back, they grow back stronger every time. So we count it all joy as we meet trials of various kinds, not because trials are fun, not because you have some sick enjoyment of pain, but because you know that straining that muscle and working through this now by the grace of God will prove your faith authentic and will produce in you a steadfastness and a strength that you previously lacked. You can trust and know what God is doing, that he is at work in it and through it. And so authentic faith counts it all joy and continues in steadfastness. And then finally, an authentic faith culminates in perfection. Culminates in perfection. That's where this is headed. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Steadfastness isn't the goal. Steadfastness is the road that we walk down towards the goal. The goal is that we would be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's our goal. That's a high goal. Um, this is the command from Jesus. Listen, Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he's drawing that from Leviticus where the Lord said, Be holy as I am holy. How are you guys doing? Anybody close? Like 80, 90%? Maybe even just this morning. I mean, it's Sunday morning, right? Somebody's doing good so far today. Nobody? Thank you for not raising your hand. I don't want to embarrass you. Um, no. No, we're all sinners. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're wretched. We're a mess. We deserve hell. We have not obeyed the command of Jesus to be perfect. Not even close. And, and because of that, we deserve hell. We deserve eternal judgment. Now we're told we must be perfect. This is just a, a, if this is just a simple command, then it's crushing and impossible. And actually, I'd argue that's exactly what Jesus was trying to do in Matthew. 
is just decimate any hope you had of meeting his command. I fear that as we read through James, talking about trials and the testing of faith, um, that it's very easy to see that uh, as just an ordinary command. And you've tried striving for perfection and you're trying to prove yourself to God and you're working hard as you go trying to show God how good you are and it's exhausting and it's crushing. We need to see this passage from another angle. This is not an impossible command. This is a wonderful promise. That's what this is. Not one of us is going to reach perfection in this life. Not one of us deserves heaven. Not one of us could stand for one second in the presence of Almighty God. But look again. The command of this passage, the call of this passage, uh, is, not, um, is not perfection, but faith. These trials are the testing of your faith, producing steadfastness. And the command is, let steadfastness have its full effect. It's a command to continue trusting the Lord, continue walking through trials. Don't short-circuit it. Don't fight it and kick against the goats. Embrace this process that the Lord is using of testing and growth because for those who continue to trust him, whose faith proves genuine, even under fire, even through tests and various trials, patiently, steadfastly waiting on him, this perfection is the reward. It's a genuine gift that the Lord gives to those who steadfastly wait on him in faith. There are some who are just weary this morning. It has been a long season of trials for many. This is hope right here. God is at work. He's doing something glorious in it and through it. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. He's perfect. We'll be like him. So we wait, we wait, struggling with doubt, but clinging to faith and hoping in him, continuing to trust him enough to count even suffering as joy as we walk through this life of trouble. And he's not burdening you with the weight of being perfect. Rather, he's promising you that he will use this process to bring about perfection in you, to cleanse and purify you from sin little by little in this life, to grow you in steadfastness and obedience, to to produce in you the, the fruit of the Spirit, to work love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control in you. And in the end, when he returns, This temporary world, this this world that is so marred by pain and and death and and plagued by sin uh, is finally brought to an end. And he will, in fact, finish that work. Right now, we walk through this process that's called sanctification. It's growing in holiness, two steps forward, one step back, little by little, following him incrementally, growing in righteousness. But on that day, when he returns, uh, we will undergo the last step in sanctification. That's called glorification. And it's the completion of it. It's the transformation of this physical body where so much of our, our pain is found into a perfect, incorruptible, eternal body. 
and the absolute eradication of sin in us, sin that is the root of all of our pain and suffering, and we'll receive that gift of being made perfect, complete, lacking nothing. That's our hope. That's the final confident joy that we can trust in as we follow him. All whose faith proves authentic, who hold on steadfastly against the winds of this corrupting culture, against the battle of sin in our own hearts, against the darkness of pain and suffering, there is this glorious, glorious end in store. So count it all joy. He's at work. Now we just need to fill in the blank here. How can this be true? Because we've not followed Jesus' command, which was a command, be perfect as I am perfect. How can, how can we hold on to this glorious hope? Because Jesus was perfect as his heavenly father was perfect. Because he did what none of us could ever do. And yet he suffered the death to end all death, bearing on himself the wrath of God that we deserve, picking up our shortcomings and putting them on him. So that all who trust in him, who have this authentic faith in him, should not perish but have eternal life. He did it. Do you trust him? Do you truly believe? Have you tested and and examined your faith? Not by what you feel, but by, by the light of scripture and God's word. Church, I know many of you have faced various trials. Some of you have faced physical suffering that has stretched your ability to trust in the goodness of God. Some of you have been caught between what the world says is right and what your heart so desperately longs for and what God's word says is right. Some of you have had marriages and families torn apart by sin and trials. Some of you have faced financial hardship and job loss. This life is few of days and full of trouble. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. I've had the joy, it's one of the greatest joys I have as a pastor to see some of you going through hardship and trial and struggle and come out with your faith blossoming and strengthened and and obvious to see the work of God that's happened. And it's one of the greatest pains as a pastor. And I think we've all seen it as some have left. As some have said, no, I want sin more. I'm gone. And you say, I thought that looked like genuine faith. And it's crushing. And it's heartbreaking. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Hold on. Count it. Joy. Continue in steadfastness. Trusting in the, the goodness and the sovereignty of God, trusting the Lord is working through all of this and that it will culminate in your perfection in the end if we persevere. Embrace this process of testing, that your faith may be proven, that the genuineness of it might be brought to light and that you might be strengthened as you continue in Him. We're going to close this morning declaring our ongoing trust in him through communion. I'll invite the worship team to join me. And don't miss this. That's what communion is partly about. It's partly an opportunity for us to examine ourselves, to come again to the cross, to see the life and death of Christ, and to ask, is that where my hope is? 
Am I a follower of Jesus? And Paul says that many have become sick and even died because they've taken the Lord's Supper lightly. Because they have on one hand held on to sin and the other hand partook of communion and saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. And it's a lie. So he says, test yourselves. That we ought to come not perfect. Oh, please don't misunderstand. We come as sinners, but sinners in repentance, seeking grace and forgiveness. And proclaiming, he is my life. He is my hope. I deserve nothing, and he has purchased me everything. 